Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, it is a joy to be here with you and to see a packed house. Man, how exciting. Last week, y'all had, uh, I think Easter, y'all had 900, over 900. What, what, right near there. Isn't that exciting? Uh, Across our campuses, we had about 9,000 people and hundreds were born again across all of our campuses. And God just did amazing, amazing things. And and it is because of you and your generosity. I saw the outreach y'all did in the park with hundreds of, of kids in the community. And of course, we get to broadcast live from the Lafayette campus because of your generosity to all the correctional facilities. We partnered with the Lafayette Parish Sheriff's Department, and they put up 100000 and you put up 100000 and we rewired all of the correctional facilities, and now we broadcast live. Uh, two weeks ago, my son Joseph was, was in the, in the uh, foyer of the church, and a guy walked up to him, and he said, I know you. I used to watch you every week in jail. I was in jail for two years. As soon as I got out, I knew I found a church that I could go to. I'm here from jail. So um, I I don't think we'll have him taking up the offering next week, but it is... It is wonderful to see God doing amazing things and to see so many of the people that Michelle and I love and have known for so many years here today. Well, I think a couple of weeks ago, you saw a message that I shared about the woman caught in the act of adultery. How many of you remember that? And and during that time, I I shared with you something, you, you have to really quantify this, is that I am an expert in women of the night. Now, you you have to say that and you have to put it in context. I was raised in a bar and there were women like that who worked for my mother. And so many people, when you think of someone who is a prostitute, you think of, you know, just just the, the, the sin and the immorality of it, but what you don't see is the brokenness that led them all the way to ultimately getting to where they are. And that, that's why I wanted to use that in our message called series, What's So Amazing About Grace? The Bible says that the person that's forgiven much loves much. The person that's forgiven much loves much. A lot of times I've been in church before and I've been kind of embarrassed. Probably you have too, by somebody who was kind of really exuberant in their worship. And you ever been kind of like brought somebody into a church for the first time and, and like you brought them in and, and you know, you were hoping that it was good. Nobody yelled out in tongues or no leg stretchers came in or I mean, nothing weird. Nobody helicoptered down the aisle. And does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, no snake handlers broke out any, you know, you just, it, just all those things that they say about churches like ours. And so you, you just, you know, I, and I, I, I understand that. But when you begin to hear some people's story, you understand why they're a little more exuberant than other people. Because the Bible says the person that's forgiven much loves much. Today, this is a message from that series, What's So Amazing About Grace? 
And I believe it's a picture. It's one that I'm going to give you that I think from this day forward, whenever you think of this biblical truth, you will think of this message. It'll leave a picture in your mind, I pray. This isn't just a a Bible story where I want to give you information, but I really want to give you impartation. I want to give you something that's actually going to change the way you see God. So I got a question for you. What comes to your mind when you picture God? What comes to your mind? What does it look like? Like when you think of God sitting on the throne, what does that look like in your mind? What expression does he have? What is his countenance like? How do you feel when you think of that? Some, some of you were raised in a traditional background to where the altar was way up high and people in robes sat up there and, and it kind of represented God being like distant and, and kind of away, kind of stoic. I, I was not raised in that background. I'm not, I'm not from this area. Many of you know that, that I'm, from, I'm from Texas, uh, but my wife was. And she was raised, Michelle was raised in Catholic schools all of her life. And she once told me about her first confession. Now, how many of you remember your first confession? Those of you who haven't confessed since then need to talk to somebody. <laughs> and, and, and she told me, this is a true story. She's right here. She'll validate this. She said that when she went in for her first confession, she couldn't think of anything sinful that she'd done. So she had to lie true story. She had to lie in her first confession. Well, the good thing is the second time she went into confess, she did have something to confess. And that was that she lied in the last confession. And, And she just talked about how afraid she was. Sometimes that's how we feel thinking about standing before the throne of God might be. A.W. Tozer, the amazing teacher and preacher of the last century said this, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. So so what do you see? My, My favorite preacher and one of our favorite preachers together is Dr. Darius Daniels. Uh, God has just just blessed him. He's blown up just all over the world now. But for years, he's been our favorite preacher. We, he came in once a month to our Savior's church for, many years, for, for a long, long time. And one of the biblical truths that he reminds us of is you don't get the God you want. You get the God you see. And then he used the, the, the story as only he could tell it. He uses a story of how Jesus came to his hometown. And when he came to his hometown, he wanted to do miracles. Think about that. Jesus is coming to his hometown. He knew the person that was blind. He grew up around them. He knew the people that were lame. He knew the people that were ill. He knew the people that constantly had physical ailments and struggles. And he's coming back to his hometown. You you know he wanted to heal the town drunk. You, You know he wanted to pray for that person who was blind and see them healed. But he'd been around all of his life. And now he comes to his hometown, but the Bible says he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And here's what they said. Isn't that Mary's boy? 
Isn't his daddy Joseph? Isn't this the carpenter's son? And then as only Dr. Darius could say, if all you see is a carpenter when you look at Jesus, then all you can get is something external fixed. Your garage, your house, your roof, your porch. But if you see a Savior, you can get your life fixed. You can get your marriage fixed. You can get your child off drugs. You can get restoration in broken relationships. You can get healing for your body because you don't get the God you want. You get the God you see. So how do you see God? Why is this so important? Because man has been hiding and running from God ever since the Garden of Eden to the prodigal son who ran away from his father and all the provision all the way to the pig pen. To your story and my story, how many of you ran from God at a point in time in your life? What were the rest of you doing? How many of you have ever been far away from God? Raise your hand. Well, let me tell you, the Bible says he's seeking you. So if he's seeking you and you didn't meet him, it's because you were going the opposite direction. Yes, the strip was the opposite direction. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Cowboys was the opposite direction. Okay, all the, the, all the other stuff you did, it was the opposite direction. Do you know the devil only has three tools to use against you and me? Only three. You know the devil's got to be good at what he does because this book right here tells us he has only three things, but he still is effective with them just as if people are seeing them for the first time. Well, what are those tools? Well, the devil is called a liar. Say that, a liar. Don't look at anybody when you say that. Just say liar. Okay, the second he's called a deceiver. Say deceiver. And the third one is an accuser. So all the devil has is lying and deceiving and accusing. The the, the devil is called the accuser of. Isn't that interesting? The devil doesn't accuse bad people that want to hurt you. The devil doesn't say, watch out for nasty Nikki. (laughs) The devil doesn't say, it's Friday night, drunk Donald's going to call. He doesn't say that. You can't go to church. Why, there's too many hypocrites in that church. You know people that go there. And I always like to say this in moments like this, and possibly I've said it here before. Maybe if you're in church today and you look over and you see someone that you're surprised that they're in church, can I share something with you? They're just as surprised to see you. (laughs) Somebody once told me, they said, you're the pastor of our Savior's church. I said, yeah. They said, I could never go to that church. I said, why? They said, there's just too many hypocrites in that church. And I said, well, we always have room for one more. Don't get discouraged. (laughs) This church is not a palace for the perfect. It's a hospital for the hurting. I hate to tell you this. Everybody's jacked up. I know you got your church clothes on, your Magellan (laughs) t-shirt. But but everybody here has issues, no matter who you are. That's why we need the grace of God. But the devil is a liar and a deceiver and an accuser. And those are the things that he uses. Those are the things that he uses. So what has he told you about God? What has he told you about God? 
What lies has he told you? Because your view of God on the throne is either divine because it's based upon the word of God or it's deceived because it's based upon the devil's lying and deceiving and accusing. This isn't a small thing. This is actually as old as the first story in the Bible. There's only been one perfect couple in one perfect environment. What was their name? Adam and Eve. It was perfect. It was perfect. Let me just say this for some parents that are here, because you need to hear this. Some of you have had children that have done horrific things and broken your heart. And let me say this to some other of you. Some of you lived a horrible example, and all of a sudden Jesus changed your life, and your children followed the change version and not the old version. I've been a parent for 46 years. After working with parents, now for 48 years, because I started off in youth ministry, parents who have good kids take way too much credit, and parents who have children that do stupid things take way too much blame. You know who Adam and Eve's father was? God. In the story of the prodigal son, the father was God. He was God. So the enemy comes and he lies. And that's what he did with Adam and Eve. Eve is in the garden. Everything is perfect. Remember, the devil only has three tools. Lie, deceive, accuse. So he's going to come and he's going to use them all at one time. This is his best shot. And so he comes to Eve and he says, hey, Eve, why don't you eat of this tree? Now, there were at least 2,500 trees in the garden. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because there's 2,500 different types of trees. God told them they couldn't eat of one tree. Not seven, not a whole row, not the juiciest roots. One, it was called the tree of the knowledge of And do you know why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Does anybody know? Because God wanted man to know evil by definition and not by experience. Let me explain that. How many of you have done some things you regret? How many of you are grateful they didn't have cell phones and videos and TikTok and my space and your space and everybody's space and their space? How many of you are glad they didn't have that when you were growing up? Can you imagine your kids walking around, Mama, that's you? No, baby, that's another Boudreaux that looks like me. No, it said right there, that's you. You dressed like that? You was that skinny, mama. What were you, never mind, what weren't you wearing? Aren't you grateful? Okay, but when you look at what the enemy does, the enemy came to Eve and he said, why don't you go and eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And I said, why is it called the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because God wanted them to know evil by definition and not by experience. How many of you have learned things are bad by experiencing bad things? How many of you don't want your children to do the same thing? You just want to define it for, don't do that, baby. Why? Believe me. But I, I'm not going to tell you because they don't have video back then, but trust me. 
don't do it. God's design is always for us to learn evil by definition and not by experience. Because when we learn from experience, we get the test first and the lesson last. I didn't do real well in school, but every time the test came before the lesson, I failed every time. You learn by consequences, bad consequences. And so Adam and Eve are now being tempted. Eve is being tempted. God has given her everything except one tree not to eat of. Interestingly enough, right next to it was another tree that was called the tree of life. And of that tree, you could eat forever and whoever ate of it would live forever. And the devil came to a perfect woman in a perfect environment of paradise and said, God is lying to you. God is keeping something good from you. And though you can have everything that's in the garden except this one tree, this one tree is the one thing you need. Isn't it interesting how the devil can take one thing that's a sin and make it to you in a moment of temptation look better to every single thing that you can do that's right? And that's what he did. And she listened to the liar and the deceiver as he accused God. And what happened? Ladies, go ahead. Confess it. It's right there in the book. Come on. This is your mama. That's your mama and him. What did she do, ladies? She ate. And then she shared it with her husband. And he ate. And then the snake drove them out of the garden. They should have driven the snake out of the garden and they should have stayed in the garden and instead the reverse happened. The snake drove them out. And now they were separated from God. So what did they do? What did they do? What's the first thing they did? They hid where? In the trees hiding from God. And, and what did they do to cover themselves? Anybody ever touched a fig leaf? Feels like sandpaper. And they put that on the most sensitive areas of their body. Just say, ouch. Do you know why? Because it's always painful to cover up. It always hurts. And who are they hiding from? Were they hiding from the devil? No, that's who they should have been hiding from. But now they're hiding from the one that loves them the most, that created them, that put them in a perfect circumstance, in a perfect situation, in a perfect garden with a perfect person. So the one that is loving, they're now hiding from, and the one they should have hid from, they're now listening to. And God comes. And he says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And look right here. Teenagers, I got, I got something I want you to hear. When God asks you a question, it's not because he wants information. He already knows. He's asking to tell you something about you. And he said, where are you? And they said, we are hiding. And he said, why are you hiding? And they said, because we're afraid. And he said, why are you afraid? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? And in one moment, fear and guilt and shame came and began to rule and dominate mankind and remind them that they were not only separated from God, but they were separated from themselves because they were spiritually dead now. 
and they would be driven out of the garden so they would not eat of the tree they should have eaten of, the tree of life, which would cause them to live forever. The first thing that sin did was it distorted man's view of God. And so instead of running to him, they ran. And instead of coming and uncovering their failures to him, they were hiding behind sandpaper with fear and guilt and shame dominating their lives. This is always the enemy's plan. Your view of God will have you hiding from God when you sin or running to God like the prodigal when he finally came to himself and said, I'm going to go back to my father's house. In the first message that you heard about the woman caught in the act of adultery, I told you the word grace was used in the Bible 131 times. It was used 124 times in the writings of the New Testament, 86 times in the writing of Paul. John 1.17 says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth. You see, the law is truth, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here's a question. How did man have his sin forgiven before Jesus came and died for our sin? How, how did he have his sin forgiven? When you sinned, you would go and you would take an animal and you would bring it to the temple and you would give it to the priest and he would go and he would sacrifice on your behalf. And in the outer courts, there were people coming. Remember when Jesus turned over all the, the, the tables and the money changers and he said, you made my house a den of thieves. Remember that? Do you know why he did that? Because people would come from long distances and in order to have an animal to sacrifice, they couldn't bring it from where they were. They'd have to buy it right there. And the people there were charging exorbitant prices. You ever bought popcorn at the movies? And it costs more than it does to get in the movies. So you're paying $10 for popcorn. The movie was $5. And for $10, you could get 10 packs of popcorn at home. They were charging exorbitant prices. They were gouging people. It wasn't they had animals available that upset Jesus. What upset Jesus is they were gouging people and overcharging them. And so now the Bible says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this high priest, you would come and bring an animal to him and he would take it and he would sacrifice it. And he would do that every day. So every day there were people coming from all over and priests were sacrificing. But one time a year, the priest would go into the holiest place of all. What was it called? The Holy of Holies. And he would go there and it was an outer court and there was an inner court. And then there was the Holy of Holies and there was a 90 foot curtain that was three inches thick. And there was the presence of God. And he would go before a seat called the mercy seat and he would take a lamb without spot or without blemish and he would sacrifice that lamb. First he'd sacrifice a bull for his sin and then he'd sacrifice this lamb and then he'd take the blood and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat to ask God for forgiveness. And when he went in, he went with the robe and at the bottom of his robe was all of these bells. Because if the bells stopped ringing, it meant because of sin in his life. And so oral Jewish law tells us that they would tie a rope around his leg so that if he died, you would just pull him out. Once a year, 
But even then, people's sins weren't forgiven. They were just covered. They were never cleansed. They were just covered. So every day, they had to go, if you sinned, how many of you sinned? How many of you sin every day? How many have been sitting for years? So we got some professional sinners here in the house today. Okay, and you, you would be taking animals over and over, sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. Now listen to what Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. Yet every day priests still serve, ritually offering the same sacrifices again and again. Sacrifices that can what? Never take away sin's guilt. But when this priest had offered one supreme sacrifice for sin for all times, he sat down on the throne of the right hand of God, waiting till all of his whispering enemies are subdued into his footstool. And by his one perfect sacrifice, he made us what? Perfectly holy and complete for all times. Let me teach you a little theological term. There's imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. Say that with me, imputed righteousness. Then imparted righteousness. Imputed means the moment that you were born again, God sees you as perfect in Christ, even though you're still a mess in heirs of your life. Say, thank God. Look at the person beside you and go, that's the Bible. So leave me alone. That, that is the way I'm seeing. Have you ever seen a mama that has their child that's their favorite child and that child could do no wrong? We have one like that. My wife is here and she will say it's not true, but I'm going to put my hand, this brown hand on this black Bible to declare this is 100% the white truth. We have a son named Joseph. Joseph had learning differences growing up, and Joseph usually didn't even know where he was half of the time. And, and, and he, he, just, he was just godless. He was just, Joseph was just, well, I mean, Joseph, the kids would look at, at Christmas and go, hold it. We all got two presents, and Joseph just looked like he had Christmas, his birthday, Yom Kippur, Jewish holidays, Hebrew. I mean, look at all he has. I've always said, Joseph could literally kill somebody. And my wife would say, that person deserved to die. <laughs> there was too many people living in his house. <laughs> Just Joseph, you know, one day when Joseph was probably about 13, he was sitting around, he goes, hold it. I just figured out something. And he wore glasses and it was like this. He goes, I just figured out something. I said, what? He goes, my name is Joseph. My daddy's name is Jacob. I'm the favorite. And my brothers hate me. I'm just like Joseph in the Bible. Imputed righteousness means because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the moment you repented and you were born again, God sees you as righteous. He sees you as perfect. But imparted righteousness is each day God's pulling junk out of your life. He's pulling some of that old Ted out of your life. 
He's pulling the stubbornness. He's pulling the pride. He's pulling the sin. He's every day. He is imparting to you more of his character. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit confirms this to us by this scripture. For the Lord says afterwards, I will give them this covenant. I will embed my laws into their hearts and fasten my word onto their. And then he says, I will read with me. Never again. What? Remember there. And he will never again. Remember them. They're not covered. They're cleansed. They're gone. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need to offer another sacrifice for sin? And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come into the most holy sanctuary and the heavenly realm. Remember, that's the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was, the place the high priest went in once a year, afraid because he may die if he had sin. He welcomes us to go into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm. How? How? And without hesitation, for he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two. Now, let me explain that. The moment Jesus died on the cross, the earth went dark. There was an earthquake. And this place inside the temple where this 90, 60 to 90 foot curtain was that was three inches thick. God tore it right in two. Because he said, no longer am I going to live in a temple made with men's hands. And no longer do you have to go to a priest. You have a high priest. And now you have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Watch this. For us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to who? And since we now have a magnificent high priest to welcome us into God's house. We come closer to God to approach him with an open heart, fully convinced that, read this with me, nothing will keep us, what? At a distance from him, for our hearts have been sprinkled. Remember the priest would sprinkle on the mercy seat. Our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood to remove impurity, and we have been freed from who? Who's the accuser? The devil. We're freed from the accusing conscience. Now we are clean and and to God inside and out. You got to get this. Remember, the devil uses fear and guilt and shame not to keep you from sin, but when you sin, to keep his foot on your back, to keep you in sin. You can't ever change, so keep watching porn. You can't ever change, so keep cheating. You can't ever change, so keep drinking. You can't ever change, so stay angry. You can't ever change, so keep unforgiveness and resentment. That is the purpose of sin, to keep you down. Grace lifts you up. Hebrews 4, 15 says it like this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to understand and sympathize and have shared what? With our what? Our weaknesses and our infirmities and the liability to the assaults of temptation. But one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us then fearlessly and and boldly draw near to what? The throne of God has now become 
the throne of grace. The throne of God's unmerited favor for us sinners that we may receive mercy for our what? failures and find grace to help us in good time. Every need at appropriate time, well-timed help coming just when we need it. The author of Hebrews, which most people believe is Paul, says there are three things Jesus understands because he came and he became flesh and blood. Here's what it is. Number one, he understands what you're going through. You don't know how many people I've talked to about when, when when, when they're so afraid to get something out and they're struggling with the sin in their life. Let me just stop and tell you something. The Bible says if you confess your sin, you'll be forgiven, but if you cover it, you will not prosper. Let me give you a promise of God that's just as true as John three sixteen. Be sure your sin will find you out. If Bill Clinton could get caught with the Secret Service at the doors, that was pre-TikTok. Be sure your sin and my sin will be found out. I mean, you know what they said? They go, but Pastor, I said, why didn't you tell somebody? They go, I was just, I was just, I was just ashamed. There's no temptation uncommon to man. Ladies, I'm going to share something with you. It's kind of disappointing. All men struggle with lust. Not my husband. No, my husband told me he never struggled with lust. No, he just struggled with habitually lying about struggling with lust. Like all women struggle with insecurity or other things that, that are common to women. There are things that are just common to men. Jesus understands He became a human. He took on flesh and blood so that he could feel what you feel, so that he could understand. Here's the second thing. He sympathizes with you. He sympathizes with you. He he can say, I know. I know. My son Joseph did his first funeral a few weeks ago, and he sat with me on Saturday, and he went over all of his notes, and it, it, was, it was a difficult funeral. It was a 26-year-old boy who was killed in a car wreck driving back from Texas where he was working. What made it more difficult is that six years before, his father had committed suicide. And there was one brother and him. And, and he's sitting across from me and he goes, Dad, so, 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 so what, what do I say here? And I said, son... There's one thing you can say that very few people can say. I understand, and I have sympathy for you. I have felt what you feel. Jesus knows what you feel. He has shared feelings. He has shared feelings. And the best part is, this passage tells us that he has that with our weaknesses. Do you know everyone here has weaknesses? I believe that your greatest strength is knowing your greatest weakness. How many of you know Jesus turned water into wine? How many of you know preachers have been trying to turn it back into water ever since? (laughs) I come from a line 
of womanizing drinkers for four generations. My great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father, and my brother. I know what I can't do. People, some of my friends have laughed at me. Jacob, you, you won't even watch an R-rated movie. I'll watch The Passion of the Christ, but no, I won't. It's not, I know I can't see somebody half-clothed and it go well with me. I know a lot of you are holier than I am. I'm just confessing my perversion, all right? My version of perversion. You can confess yours later. But here's what I've discovered. If you don't let the right people know your weaknesses when you're struggling, pretty soon everybody will know your weaknesses. What are your weaknesses? The Bible says, confess your faults one to another so that you may be healed. Part of healing comes by opening up and being honest with other people because then they can be honest with you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know people that struggle in areas of their life, but they would never say that's where they struggle? Raise your hand. Do you know why it's important for you to confess it to other people? Not for forgiveness, but so they can help you. You know what I've discovered? If people don't ask for my input, they usually don't want it. Advice that's usually not asked for is usually not appreciated. But when they confess it, they give me permission to address it. That was better than your response, but that's okay. I have a good self-esteem. That's not my weakness. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our infirmities. He understands our infirmities. And then it says, he understands our liabilities to the assaults of temptation. And all of us have them. I don't care who you are. Look right here. Look at your pastor. Your pastor, pastor's pastor. You're one step away from stupid. Every person I've ever met with, whether it's a pastor that's fallen morally or a man that's done something out of anger, they, 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 they all say the same thing. I can't believe I did that. Listen, outside of me being controlled by the Holy Spirit and submitted to him and dying to my flesh daily, I'm capable of anything, and so are you. You're welcome. And this passage tells us that we can now go boldly to our high priest. And the throne of God is now the throne of grace, and we can approach it. And we don't have to be afraid. I love teaching people this acronym for grace. Say it with me, grace. G-R-A-C-E. It stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. It's, say it again, God's riches at Christ's expense. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. But his sacrificial death on, on the cross, paying for all my sins, past, present, and future. Because of that, I have unmerited, undeserved forgiveness and favor the moment I repent. The moment I repent. Let me help you. I want to explain a moment about repent. The moment I repent, it is important for you to repent. It's not enough to say that you're sorry. Repentance is a gift that God grants to people who truly are sorry for what they've done. Have you ever said you were sorry, but you had no intention of changing? 
That wasn't repentance. That was manipulation to get back in the house. This passage tells us that we can do three things as we approach the throne of God that the high priest could never do themselves. He says, number one, we can come fearlessly. We can come fearlessly. The place that he would only go in once a year with bells around and a rope tied around his leg, we can go in fearlessly. 1 John 4.18 says, love never brings what? Fear. For fear is always related to punishment but love's perfection drives the fear of punishment what far from our hearts whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection the king james says there is no fear in love perfect love casts out fear when adam and eve were hiding in the garden why were they hiding they were afraid so you know what jesus does when you surrender to him The very thing that cast them out of the presence of God, he cast out and away from you. And that's fear. Here's the second thing. It says we can come confidently. Confidently. Because there's no condemnation or accusation. Guilt, fear, and shame gained their powers in the Garden of Eden. But guilt, fear, and shame lost their power at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, Paul is giving this whole argument about struggling with sin and how you overcome and how the devil treats you when you fall. And he says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no what? Look at me. God will never condemn you even when you sin. What do you mean? What happens to me when I sin? He convicts you. What's the difference between conviction and condemnation? Condemnation is fear, guilt, and shame. It's foot on your back telling you you can never make it. You're going to fall into the same thing. You might as well stay right there. Has anyone ever heard that voice? It keeps you away from God. It makes you feel hopeless. That's why it's called condemnation. The word con is is a Latin term, con. You know, everybody had chili con queso? Okay. That's chili with cheese. Chile con queso. Con means with. Condemnation is with damnation. God will never condemn you, ever, if you're a born-again child of God. But what he will do is convict you. Pastor, what is conviction? How many of you are old enough to remember those big signs Back in the day when it said, Uncle Sam wants you, and there was a finger pointing like this, and no matter where you moved, the finger was pointed straight at you. Anybody remember that? Come on, old people. Thank you very much. I'm going to come to New Iberia more often. Thank you. (laughs) Conviction is when the Holy Spirit comes and he goes, go and make that right. Make that right. It doesn't push you away. It puts you back to reconciliation, both to people and to God. It never pushes you down. It always lifts you up. When, when I became a, a born-again Christian in, in my junior high school, when an African-American counselor prayed with me, it, it sounds crazy to even say this, but my biggest struggle was not with immorality. I gave that up right away. My biggest struggle wasn't with drugs. Boom, gave that up right away. I was with a little street gang. I went to them, told them what happened to me. They got rid of me. I didn't have to get rid of them. 
You know, if you tell the wrong, the, the wrong people that you've been running with about what Jesus is doing right in you, you don't have to get rid of them. They'll get rid of you. And that's what happened. You know what the most difficult thing for me to give up was? Smoking. Thank God they didn't have vaping then. Anybody here ever smoked? Raise your hand. Anybody ever smoked? Okay. If you've ever smoked before, you know, the, the, the thing that once you start smoking, you appreciate is that when you take that first deep drag, you just go, it just like burns your chest and everything. And then when you're a kid, I started smoking when I was nine, you start making rings and, and you're making, you know, animals and different things and shapes. And, and, and like, you feel cool when you do that. So you Does anybody remember those days? Okay, and, and, and so I, I'm telling you, when you stop smoking, and I was, I was trying to stop. Remember, drugs was gone, immorality was gone. It, it was smoking. And somebody would be smoking around you. And you'd be like getting a little nose hits. Like, and your mouth would start salivating. So I'm, I'm walking home from school. It's middle eighth grade. Um, one of the guys that I knew walking home from school with, and, and he looks over at me and he goes, hey, Jacob, you want a cigarette? It's a pause, and I heard a voice. One won't hurt anything. Oh, you all know that voice? That was the same voice that talked to Eve. One bite won't hurt anything. So I went, sure. So... He reached into a sock. That's what you do in junior high school if you had cigarettes. <laughs> Pulled them out, lit it, lit it up, took that first deep drag. Just <sighs> chest was burning. I was getting ready to make animals and stuff. <laughs> and just as I was exhaling, I heard this voice. I told you you wouldn't make it. Two weeks and you can't even stop smoking. Your brother said you weren't going to make it. He said this is just an emotional thing. You might as well go back to the way you were before. <laughs> Things haven't changed. Anybody ever heard those voices? Who is that the voice of? The liar, the deceiver, the accuser, the condemner. And so I went, I mean, all this is going on in my mind. About that time, my friend goes, hey, man, this guy right here is, He's having a party at his apartment tonight. Let's go over there and see if they got anything to drink in there. Like, I'm set up. Yeah. Let's go. Walk into his house. Knock on his door. He opens up the door. <clears throat> he opens up a refrigerator. Looks like a Bud Light commercial. People are dancing. Beers are speaking to you, grabbing you by the throat. We start drinking, and then I remembered that when I gave my life to Christ two weeks before, I'd left some drugs in my house. So when I got those, and I'm laying on the couch at this guy's apartment. I can tell you exactly where it is right now, and I'm just laying there. My friend left. The music's playing. Everybody's going to get there in about an hour and a half. And I just keep hearing this voice. You have blown it. You Look at every... Your brother told you you weren't going to make it. This is... And then all of a sudden, I heard another voice. And it said, Jacob, I love you. I forgave you once. 
I'll forgive you again. I jumped up. I jumped up and I went home. My stepmom had an avocado-shaped Chevrolet Impala. And she was there in front of the house and I said, um, Miss Ivy, could, could you drop me off at the school? The church bus is coming by in 30 minutes. They're going to pick up kids and take them to the, to the youth group. My pastor tells this story, Pastor Keith. I walked in, I got on the bus, my hair was about down to here, my hat was on backwards, and I got on and I looked at him, he pulled up in the bus, and I said, Pastor Keith, can can I go with y'all? He said, well, sure, Jacob. Why do you think we wouldn't let you go? I said, I think I backslid. And I got on that bus 48 years ago, and I never got off, and I never listened to that voice again. I can go confidently because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8, 1, the Passion Translation says, Oh, now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Guilt is gone because of the blood of Jesus. Fear is gone because of perfect love. Shame is gone because he took my shame on the cross and paid for all my sin, past, present, and future. Here's the third thing this passage tells us is we can go boldly. We can go boldly. Ephesians 1, 5 says this, For it was always in his perfect plan to adopt us as his delightful children, that our union with Jesus, the anointed one, so that his tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify his grace. Read this with me. For the same love he has for... Well, that was real weak. For the same love he has for his beloved Jesus. Read it with me. He has for us. The same love that he has for Jesus, he has for me. The same love that he has for Jesus, he has for you. I want you to say with me, the same love that he has for Jesus, he has for me. The same love that he has for Jesus, he has for me. And this unfolding plan brings him great pleasure. Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given the treasures of redemption of his blood. Here's the treasure, the total cancellation of our sin, all because of the cascading riches of his grace. I I love the Passion Translation where it says this, so now we draw near freely and boldly to where, what? Grace, not just God, where grace is enthroned, to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. Because our high priest, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, went into the cross and he gave the one ultimate sacrifice of himself for all of our sins. Now when we sin, we don't have to hide from God. We can run to God. We can run to God. We can run to God. 
You know what makes us attractive to God? When we're hurting. You know what makes us attractive to God? When we're humble. You know what makes us attractive to God? When we need Him. Michelle and I have a lot of children, a lot of spiritual children. People ask me all the time. We know who Michelle's favorite is. But they ask me, which one of your children is your favorite children? Or your favorite child? And I always give the same answer. Whichever one needs me the most. Someone said, God has favorites. You just have to choose to be one of them. He's near the humble and the brokenhearted. That makes you one of his favorites at that moment. I want to give you a picture of what it looks like to see the throne of God. Because one day, we're all going to. And in my mind, I have a picture, a clear picture. I don't want to belabor the story, but many of you know that in 2016, we lost our son Wesley, was killed on Kali Salumi's run over in a motorcycle. He was on a motorcycle. Someone pulled out of the theater, ran 14, and didn't see him. And every night as we pray together, Michelle and I pray a few times together. It's not a deep, heavy thing. We just hold hands and we pray together. And I pray pretty much the same prayer. Pray for Jacob, Lily, Christian, Alex, Eli, Finley, Kate, Baby Shallow, Joseph, Rochelle, John Wesley, Wesley, who's in your arms, Haddon and Amberly Grace. And my princess, plead your blood over them, your angels surround and keep them and protect them. And then if something else is going on, if there's a crisis in one of our churches, or, then, then we pray for that. But I want to show you the picture that I get when I say, Wesley, who's in your arms? Because I believe this is the throne of Christ and what it's going to look like. That's my picture of being in the arms of Jesus. That's my picture. That is the throne of grace to me. My father waits for me. Your father waits for you to come boldly. Father, today we thank you for your supernatural grace. We thank you that none of us are here because we're good enough, but we're here because you were gracious enough. We know the law came through Moses, but today we're grateful that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest who died once and for all. Today, we never want to be afraid whether we succeed or whether we sin whether we fail or whether we're in a famous moment of our life. We never want to keep from running to you. We want to do the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did when they hid. I thank you for your grace. I pray that for every single person here, the throne of God is now 
a revelation for them as the throne of grace. The God who waits. The God who cares. The God who knows, who feels, who sympathizes. So we can come fearlessly and boldly and confidently. And now with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. You're hearing you say, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. But I've never been born again. What does that mean? Jesus said, unless a man or woman is born again, they wouldn't see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, unless a man or woman was born again, they wouldn't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, don't be surprised that I tell you, you must be born again. When Adam and Eve ate in the garden, they died spiritually. And every person born since Adam and Eve has been born spiritually dead. Mother Teresa was born spiritually dead. Billy Graham was born spiritually dead. You and I were born spiritually dead. And our spiritual journey didn't begin until the day we trust Jesus, repent. It means to turn away from sin and to turn to him to be born again. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I may have even been christened or baptized, maybe even joined the church, but I've never prayed to be born again. And if Jesus said, I must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven or to enter into it, Pastor, today, would you pray for me? I want to begin my spiritual journey today. I want to repent. I want to turn to Jesus with my whole heart surrender. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going to just ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you in your seat right where you are. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for you right in your seat, right where you are. When I get to the count of three, if that's you, if you say, Pastor, could you pray for me? I want to be born again. I want to repent. I want to know God. I want to get rid of fear and guilt and shame that have haunted my life condemnation that I've lived with. If that's you on the count of three, I'm going to just ask you to raise your hand high and put it back down. One, God brought you here. Yes, he did. He brought you here. Whoever it was that invited you, whoever circumstances that led you here, if you came last week, first time you've been in church, long time, whatever it was, God brought you here. He knew the day would come. Two, he's waited for this moment. You know how you get frustrated when you wait for 15 minutes for somebody and they don't show up? For 30 minutes and they don't show up? God has waited for you all these years for now. Lovingly, patiently. And now's your day to be born again. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. Yes, one, two, three, four, five, six. Anywhere else? Seven. Anywhere else? Eight. Anywhere else? Nine. Yes. Okay. You can put your hands down. Last 10 seconds. Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these nine, but I should have. My heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know this is what I need. I know God is talking to me. It's your voice, but I know God is talking to me. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. I'm just afraid. I said to myself, if you ask, yes, one more time, I'm going to do it. I know this is me. If you didn't raise your hand the first time, but you should have, I want you to raise it and wave it at me right now. I'm asking this last time just for you. Ten. Anywhere else? Anywhere else? All right. 
the church, let's join all of those that raise their hand and let's pray out loud this prayer for them to be born again. Let's join them. We're going to pray out loud with you. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. You paid for my sin, Jesus, so I turn away from it to receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.